All right. Let's dive right in. We've been in the series here, Alternate Reality. And the definition of the word reality is the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or a notional idea of them. We begin to look at this idea of, of where you and I, as born-again, spirit-filled believers, should have our focus and have our attention. And the world that we see is a part that we are in, but not of. And getting that reality is so difficult, because we are really moved by what we see, and what we hear, and what we feel, and what we smell. I mean, and, and you know how powerful it is, because when smells bring back memories, you know what I'm talking about? Like, like you, you smell something and it's a positive something. Let's start with that. Maybe it's not a positive something, okay? But, but as you smell it, it brings back this, this emotion that you may have had in the moment. And as crazy as this thing is, I'm going to tell you guys this story because it's funny and I like my story. So I did not grow up around my grandparents. My, my grandfather, um, I never met the man until 2003. And by that time, he had Alzheimer's. So I met him frequently from that point on. And... Uh, but I had, and my, my dad's parents had already died when I was very young, so I never really knew them. So I had my grandmother who lived in Detroit, and we lived in Nebraska, and those two things are not close together. But every, you know, we'd go up there Christmas time a lot, or, or once in a while they would fly me up. Do they still fly kids by themselves? That's what I had to do. I don't know if that's still a thing or not. But anyway, and my grandmother, um, she lived in a, a mobile home, and it's, it's mobile home park in the Detroit area. It's one of the suburbs of Detroit. And... Uh, Every year, and I looked forward to this, she would buy these frozen things called steakums. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You guys, yeah. And, and I would look so forward to these things because the only time I ever got them, and you could smell them as she was microwaving them. And I got pretty excited about this. Like, they're like really thin steak, and you would, it was like a steak sandwich, kind of. It was very thin. And uh, I loved them as a kid, and I got them once a year, maybe twice a year, but I just that smell, I recognized. Well, a, a, a couple of years ago, Diana, who she's not here today, but she can attest to this, was cleaning out a freezer, and she brought some stuff here and said, hey, would you have any interest in that? And in there was a box of steaks. And I have not seen these things since I was a child. I didn't even know they were still in existence, or maybe they're not in existence. They've been sitting in her freezer since I was a child. I don't know. Either's possible. But I saw them like, oh my goodness, I used to love these things. And so I took them home and I started preparing them. And I'm like, that's not the smell I remember. And then I went to eat it. And that was not the taste that I remember. Those things were terrible. And I thought, what on earth was my grandmother doing to me all these years? What's that? I, didn't, I don't check things like that. We don't need to be bombarded with facts around here. So if you're asking for my glowing, you know, like report on steakums, don't buy them, okay? That's, that's probably a bad idea. What's that? Spam? No, I like spam. You fry that stuff, put it on white bread with mayonnaise, it's, oh, heavenly. Heavenly. Whatever part of the pig that is, it's delicious. So, or whatever meat it is. It's part rat, I don't know, it's hard to say. How do we get off on this? Anyway. But, but, I mean, it's like it, that, that, that idea of it brings back memories and, and all of this. It's like we are so moved by what we see, feel, hear, touch, smell. So moved by it. And yet, when we look at the Scriptures, we're, we've got to get this understanding is that we cannot be moved by that. Because that is not the reality that you and I walk in. We walk in a world that is full of hate, that is full of dissension, 
that is full of sickness, that is full of evil. It's full of a lot of things that are contrary to God. And that's the world that we're walking in. But we can't be moved by that in the sense that we are a part of that because we're not. We're a part of the kingdom of God. And that's what the scriptures say. So it always comes back to this idea, well, what does scripture say? In John chapter 17, verse 13, it says, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself that, I also may be, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. You see, Jesus is giving this notion that, that yes, we are in this world, but we're not of it. And that's why they hate him. Because he's in it, but he's not of it. And then his disciples are in it, but they're not of it. And so, Lord, keep them. Protect them by your truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart is what sanctify me. To set them apart by your truth. And so if you and I are born-again believers, that means we walk at a higher plane and we see things through the lenses that are Scripture and we have to go and say, okay, God, what is it that you're doing here? What is it that your plan is here? What is it that your will is here? But we often don't because we are so moved by what we hear, what we see, what we feel. Guys, we've never even experienced persecution to the level that the majority of the world has. When people give their lives to uh, Christ in other parts of the world, throughout history, it came with the cost. Sometimes it was their lives. Many times it's their family. It's their way of living. That is why you saw compromise that would take place. Because they were trying to protect their lives. But that's not what we're called to do. You see, you and I are created in the image of God. And in 1 John 2, it says that now by this we know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, He's a liar. The truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. And by this we know that we are in Him. He who abides in Him ought also Himself to walk, just as He walked. We walk how He walked. We do what He did. We see what He sees. We say what he said. We are his express image on this earth. The agent of Jesus as he was the agent of Father. That means that we don't go by what I see. I go by what God says. That's it. We have a lot of cliches that we use. God says it. That, I believe it. That settles it. Well, let me tell you something. That's cute. And it's great if you believe it. But God said it. And whether you believe it or not. It's settled. See, that's the problem. We keep putting the onus back on us as if we get a vote. We don't get a vote on what God's will is ultimately. We don't get to determine what is moral and immoral. We don't get to determine what is good and what is not good. We don't get to determine the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Him. This is who He is. And so when He says that you are my disciples indeed, if we don't get to part in determining that. You see, so much has been put on us by Him. We are His agent. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that they may, uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. There's a separation We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are in a world that we are not of. We're not from here. But where we come from, they look different. 
And they talk different. And they act different. And there's an authority that's been given to them. And we have begun to look through scriptures to see this. You see, you've got to understand this agent aspect. In John chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has... So when he talks about here, I can of myself do nothing. Do you know how powerful that is? That this is the Son of God. This is Jesus himself. He says, I can't do anything of myself. He says that as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Isn't that crazy to think about? The Son of God is after one thing and one thing only, the will of the Father. You see, he was an agent of the Father. It's the, the, uh, the, the term is the shaliach. The agent or representative of the Father. And so as we've kind of dove into this piece by piece, we realize that Jesus is the agent and representative of the Father. You and I are the agent and representative of Jesus. Did Jesus do everything that the Father did? Yeah. Did he say everything that the Father said? Yeah. Did he just come up with anything kind of off-kilter? He's like, yeah, I'm going to kind of go my own way this time. No, never once. So that means that you and I, if we are disciples, we are his representative. But not everybody who claims to be a disciple is a disciple. Is that fair? Because we've got it in our culture today that you just be born again. But what does that even mean? We've got the biblical definition, but we don't necessarily use that. You see, going to church doesn't make one right with God. It's not about just being born again. That's important. But it's becoming a disciple. You see, Jesus didn't go around making converts. He made disciples. Disciples were people who followed around the leader, made uh, every action he could to, as, a, as a teaching moment so that they would understand. And he spent three years with a bunch of people, specifically 12, getting them ready. And even before he was gone, he sent them on their own. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go preach the kingdom, and I want you to heal the sick, and I want you to cast out demons. And they did. And they came back, and they're like, man, this was awesome. Did you see that? And Jesus like, yeah, that's cute, but your name's written in heaven. And then he sent the 70, the exact same thing happened. And it just, it was time and time again. And as they were doing this, they were looking at it from the standpoint of an earthly mindset, like, holy cow, we can do what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is like, duh. Because they, they went as his representative. And see, that's you and I. We go as his representative. But how do we become his agent? This is the key, and this is where we've been looking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, we're going to drill into this a little bit more tonight because we've got to get an understanding of this. It's, this is Paul talking. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there is a lot here. There's a lot to unpack. But we have turned this moment into some sort of a sacrament of which we just make it holy and pious and we just go through and we're like, okay, we just do it. But we give no thought to what it is. We give no thought to what's happening. We give no thought to what this is implying. But what he says here is that this bread, my body. 
this blood, blood of the new covenant. As often as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come. That's a bold statement. There's a lot said there. And there's a net result that Paul goes into after in verse 27. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And here's the problem. This is heavy. The net result of not taking this seriously seems to imply that the people doing it are getting sick and they are dying. Hello. How many churches around the world are not taking this seriously? They're just partaking. How many people each and every week do you think at some point here in America or other parts of the world are just simply going through the motions, taking the bread, taking the cup, not giving it much thought? Why is Paul hammering this point home? You see, we have to understand something. And we have to drill into this. This is a Seder meal that is taking place. We know that the bread would be the unleavened bread. And we talked about that. We know the cup, the cup after supper, the third cup, the cup of redemption. We know that part. But the proclamation of the Lord's death until he returns is crucial. Look at Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? When did we die to sin? The moment of the cross. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Do you see how we're associating here? This isn't a physical thing because we didn't die. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. And but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you guys know what likewise means? Just as, in the same manner. Now there's something in here in verse 5. It says, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, what Paul is getting at here is that as Christ died, so did we. As Christ was buried, so were we. As Christ was resurrected, so were we. This new life given by God In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, that's great. So we say all of these things, these cliché. But what is he talking about? Because we weren't crucified and we've turned this into simply a moral statement. I'm crucified from sin, therefore I'm made right with God. But do we take that seriously? Or do we do what other parts of Roma talks about, that we just, we just kind of take it for granted, that we, now we've got this freedom to sin, 
No, of course not. So what is he talking about? We've got to go back to the imagery being laid out and what was taking place in that moment. Because as Jesus is sitting there, he says, I have wanted to have this meal with you. I've been waiting anxiously for this moment. Well, what's happening there? Well, let's start here in Exodus chapter 12. Verse 1, we're going to go back and we're going to look at this. This is the Passover meal. I know we're, we're kind of repeating some of this stuff. I promise we're going to get into some new stuff because I want you to see this. In Exodus chapter 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take a lamb uh, for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him, uh, and his, him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread. And with the bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. Its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what uh, remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when you see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God instructed the families to take a perfect lamb and to slaughter, couldn't break any bones. They were to roast it, they were to eat it, and that part was good. Hopefully they prepared it well. But what mattered was the application of the blood. And if they didn't do that, then it didn't matter. Didn't matter what you killed, didn't matter what you ate, didn't matter if you got everything else right. You didn't apply the blood, didn't make any difference. And then the Lord passed over that night. You see, what's happening here is God is ordaining something. He's setting something up. And this moment is the same moment that Jesus is talking about. Take, eat, this is my body. Take this cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. We've got to figure out what's going on here. And so you've got to understand something. God moves in covenants. He's got, there are so many covenants through Scripture, not just with God and man, but between other nations you'll see covenants set up. Covenants matter. And in Psalm 105, it's kind of a recap of the different covenants. And I'm going to read for a little bit here, but you're going to watch these things unfold. In verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen one. So now we're getting into this, right? Just think about these words. I mean, you and I are in a new covenant based on better, pro- like, this thing is, is good. And the relationship that we have is special. They didn't have that. And look at the words he's using. 
Verse 7, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Hey, what does everlasting mean? It doesn't mean that political people get to decide if that's still in force. That covenant was to Abraham from God forever. Verse 12, when they were few in number, indeed very few and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones, do not Uh, and do my prophets no harm. Now, what was going on there? From one nation to another, what were they? They were pilgrims. They were sojourning. And what did he do? He permitted no one to do them wrong. He rebuked their kings, and he said, don't touch my anointed, my set-apart ones. Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Now we know where we are in the, the timeline, right? They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possession to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham, which is Egypt. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people and to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and he did not rebel against his word. He turned the waters into blood and killed their fish. Their lands abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and lice in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and locusts came, young locusts without number, and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. He also destroyed all all the firstborn in their land to the first of all their strength. So where are we at? The plagues. The people, the chosen people of God in Egypt. The plagues are now, are now ongoing. Look at verse 37. He also brought them out with silver and gold. So now they're exiting. Did they leave poor? No, they left rich. But watch what happens. And there was none feeble among his tribes. Now what does feeble mean? means sick there was none sick you got over a million people that are going to flee that have been in bondage and were whipped and beaten and they all left with life isn't that interesting let's go on Egypt was glad when they departed, and the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night and the people asked him and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven the what the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, the water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river, for he remembered his holy promise in Abraham his servant. And he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. 
So now we've got a quick rundown in Psalm 105 of the history of the people of Egypt. God's chosen people set apart to be a kingdom unto himself, a kingdom of priests who would serve the Lord, to be a witness to the entire world of what happens when you follow Yahweh, the one true God. There are many gods. In fact, the plagues of Egypt were against the gods of Egypt. It was judgment against him, showing himself to be mighty. But in verse 37, he brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribe. And what happened right before he brought them out? The Passover meal. You see, I want to introduce an idea to you guys today to understand it because it is a question that I have asked for years. The blood of the lamb is easy. It makes sense. But never once does it in the Passover pattern talk about the beating the lamb to death, just beating the holy fire out of him. And when Jesus associates the breaking of the bread and says, this is my body and it is broken for you, that does not fit the Passover pattern. The giving of the blood, the lamb, all of that fits it, but that bread doesn't. And I have asked this question for years. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. But there is this idea of something called a covenant meal. You will find this throughout the entirety of Scripture. And what a covenant meal is is when two parties or multiple parties come together, they will have a meal inaugurating a covenant between nations and sometimes between man and God. And I want you to watch something. In Exodus chapter 24, we're going to go verse 1. It says, Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you in Arab, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Now, who's he? He is God. Who did he call? He said, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Those are the sons of Aaron. Those four, plus the 70 of the elders of Israel. And they're going to worship from afar. So they're coming up, but they're kind of a ways off. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgment. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel, and he offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now that phrase should sound a little familiar. right? This is the new covenant in my blood. We are tying these things together, but I want you to watch what happens here. The nation of Israel was given an opportunity to enter into a new covenant with God. The land covenant was one that God had made on behalf of the nation. That's why it is unbreakable. Because when God promises something, God fulfills what he promises. You know who doesn't? Us, right? 
And so what's happening here is God essentially putting this way simplified is that, hey, if you do what I say, you'll be blessed. And if you don't, you'll be cursed. Do you accept my terms? And what do they say? All that the Lord has said, we will do. And we will be obedient. Now, was that true? No. But they cut the covenant. The blood is sprinkled on all parties, including the book. So the book was all the writings that God has said. Now look at verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in his clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, they ate, and they drank. What's going on here? We have a covenant being cut, and now they are partaking in a covenant meal. Now, not long afterwards, Moses sets up the erotic priesthood and all this stuff, the tabernacle, and the Israelites were instructed to share a covenant meal while presenting something called a peace offering. The men and women would eat a portion of their sacrifice alongside each other, making peace with God and the priest and every other member of the covenant family. Now look at Leviticus chapter 7. I know you guys love when I go to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes of his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it, he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it till morning. So, put this down shortly. There's a bread that was partook, there's a meat that was partook, and the sprinkling of the blood, and they would do this making peace with God as part of this sacrifice. These peace offerings or covenant meals were always given at key events. You got the kingly coronations that take place. You got the movement of the ark to David's tent, the dedication of Solomon's temple, the covenant renewal under Asa. You got the purification of Hezekiah's temple. You got the consecration of the walls of Jerusalem. If you go back and you look, those are all just a few examples of every time that they were doing something here. A peace offering was made and a covenant meal would take place. They were reiterating the covenant. There are several times in the Old Testament that you can see this. Besides this, Jacob and Laban is a perfect example. Because when they finally began to make peace, what did they do? They had a covenant meal. Why does this matter? In the New Testament, Jesus is finally taking believers into the fullness of this new covenant. But before he executes it, what does he do? He sits down to have a covenant meal with his people. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 14. It says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? With fervent desire. How many Passovers had Jesus partaken of? At least 30. One every year of his life. How many had he partaken of with his disciples? Probably two at this point. Because conceivably, again, the numbers are a little mishmash. But he'd been with them about three years. This is year three. But it's with fervent desire he's desired to eat this Passover. 
Not just the Passover. Not like we're just looking forward to it because it's a good time, which it probably was. But this Passover with you. And what's he do? Verse 7, then he took the cup and he gave thanks. He said, this, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, which he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, why am I saying that this is a covenant meal? So you've got to understand what's taking place. Is there a new covenant being consecrated? Yes. It is between the Father and the Son on behalf of all mankind. That is why man has no part to play in it. That's why you can't earn your way to salvation. You can't do something simply to bring yourself into this covenant. It is what the Father and the Son have executed together. But now they're partaking of it. This bread represents my body. This this cup represents my blood. They are consuming it. Now look at what happens in verse 24. It says, Now there was a dispute among them. To which of them should be considered the greatest? And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. What is he serving? He is serving them this Passover meal. But he is the greatest among them. But yet he's serving. He's comparing the Gentiles, which is not covenant people, the everybody else, to him. They're sitting at the table. Watch what he says, verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Why could he do that? Because the peace offering is now being consumed. You see, you never, you don't go into the king's uh, his, his area, ever. You don't walk in. You're only invited. You do not eat at the king's table, ever. What did he just say? You have continued in my trial. I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. This peace has now been, inaugur- there is now peace between man and God. This is the consummation of all things. There is now a reconciliation that is taking place between God and man for the first time. We are now at peace with God, those of us who partake. But what about the part where it says if they partake in an unworthy manner? There are consequences to that, right? There are consequences apparently to this that we're not worthy. And I've told you this. Don't confuse this. It's not like, oh, yeah, I did something wrong this week and I just don't care and I'm just going to partake. That's not what it's talking about. Because as it says in the Ten Commandments, do not take the Lord your God's or the Lord your God's name in vain, does not mean don't use it as a cuss word. It's don't take on his image ship and not represent. It's the same thing here. Is that if you're partaking of something that you are not a part of, in other words, it would be like bringing strange fire into the temple. Well, look what happens in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, who are they? They're the sons of Aaron. Where do we just see their name? They partook of that covenant meal. 
And they agreed that they would do everything that God has said and be obedient to it. Each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. It's almost like they tried to just enter in their own way. They were a part of that covenant meal, but they apparently didn't take it seriously because they just thought, no, we'll just get some fire. We'll just walk in there. Go back and read the story yourself. And what happens? God sends judgment upon them that cost them their life. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Has anything changed? No, we have to regard God as holy. God sets the parameters, not you and I. We don't set the rules. When we enter into his kingdom, it's only if we have peace with him. We are in covenant with him. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 again. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned in the world. You see, guys, this is the same thing that's taking place. People were coming in an unworthy manner. They were not a peace with God. They were simply walking through the motions. See, there's something that happens. In our culture today, we just try to get along with everybody. We just like, well, we just got to love them into the kingdom. But that's not what happens. It amazes me that people just want to look past sin and just kind of pretend that it's not a thing. And say, like, well, I'm just going to love them into the kingdom and, and, and whatnot. And I asked them, how well is that working for you? How many people have devoted their lives to God as a result of that? You know what the answer is? Almost none. So really what they're saying is, no, I don't want to be confrontational and them not like me. That's really what they're saying. But we see in Luke chapter 14 that there is confrontation. In verse 25 it says, now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You mean there's, there's like a pecking order or there is something, there's a condition attached to this? To be the disciple of Jesus, you have to give up everything. And what's he say? For which of you, intending, a build, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against the, uh, other, another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks condition of peace. So likewise, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Guys, that's heavy. It's so heavy because here's the thing. That's not how we talk today. 
What does it take to become a disciple of Jesus? Bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, repeat after me. You have to hate everything but him. This is Jesus' words. He doesn't say that, well, you might be able to be a disciple, but a lower tier one. No, he says you cannot be. We're not making converts. We're making disciples. We see this idea in this covenant meal, this peace offering in Genesis chapter 14. And I'll finish up with this part. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he gave him a tithe of all. Who is Melchizedek? We don't know much about the man. But he came out, and Abraham recognized him. He said that he is a priest of God Most High. This predates the priesthood. The priesthood doesn't come into play until the Mosaic Covenant. And when he came out, what did he bring with him? Bread, and he brought out wine. And he and Abraham sat down, and he declared a blessing over him. Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And what did he do? He gave him a tithe of all. But where's the commandment to tithing? doesn't exist yet. So there's something that's going on here. What is Melchizedek doing? They're entering into a covenant meal. Well, we see in Hebrews chapter 6 an explanation given a little bit deeper on this. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them, and an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, but sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're getting an explanation of this priesthood now. So an anchor for the soul, the presence behind the veil. Remember, the veil is only where the high priest could go into once a year. Chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, let me explain this. Because the, the priesthood was all based on genealogy, every bit of it. And the high priest had to have an even greater genealogy, being the line of Aaron. But here, Melchizedek predates that, and it has nothing to do with who his father was, or his mother was, and that his genealogy was. It has nothing to do with the beginning of days or the end of life. He was made like the Son of God, and he remains a priest continually. Oh, and, and what did this say his name was? It was the King of Peace. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren. 
Though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal man received tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So therefore... If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah and which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he has not made priests without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. That was a mouthful. But here's the thing. We're looking at what Jesus has done and why you and I have the relationship with God to be the representative that we have today. And we can look at it through the example that was just given. When Abraham meets Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, and as far as we know, the only one, what was he there? What did the priest do? They represented God to mankind. And what did Melchizedek do? He brought the bread and the wine, and they had a covenant meal, a peace meal, given between them. And then we see Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what does he do? With fervent desire, I sit down to eat this Passover with you. And he says, this bread is my body for you. This wine is my blood in the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. And just like the Passover, the new covenant meal is a memorial of God's work and redemptive history. And the Passover remembers the exodus. The new covenant meal reminds the members of the gospel events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. As a gospel meal, it actualizes the work of God for all the body of believers. The reason we can enter boldly into the throne room is because we are at peace with God. The bread and the wine, it was a covenant meal that Jesus was doing with his disciples who had forsaken all to follow him, and we follow in his footsteps. Being at peace with God means that we have certain promises and guarantees, and anything we need, we receive from him. You guys see this? I know this was a lot. But we've got to begin to understand this. These things are not in Scripture without reason. Every part of it is there for a reason. Our relationship with God and His relationship with us is all through these covenants. The reality that we walk in 
is that we walk in a world that is outside of peace with God. And there is a judgment that is going to come upon this earth. Read Revelation. And it's going to wipe out a third of mankind, a third of vegetation, a third of the animal. There's a judgment coming on this planet. And ultimately, the consummation of all things where this planet and this universe and everything that you and I know and love and we want dies. It's all going away. But he's creating a new one for those who are at peace with him. You and I cannot partake in an unworthy manner because we are at peace with him. Do you guys see how powerful this is? Do you see what happens when tradition takes over? It removes the strength of what this is. We're not like the Pharisees. We have this relationship with God unlike anybody that predated Jesus. You and I being the temple of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that we have a greater understanding of who we are with you. And I thank you for all that you do and all that you've done and that we will walk in the fullness of it and we never lose sight of who we are and that we can walk knowing that we are at peace with you because the Sin has already been paid for. The punishment has been done. It can never be held against us again. And Lord, we are so grateful for all that you do and that you continue to do in our lives. May we be an example on this earth as your representative and agent, Lord, everywhere we go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We will see you Wednesday.